Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Second Chapter Podcast. I'm making it my mission to get the podcast into more people's ears, so I'm asking for your help. I have friends telling me all the time about a great podcast they've listened to, and I take their recommendations and I listen to them. So will you tell a friend about the second chapter? It's easy to spread the word. Just tell them to search the second chapter wherever they listen to podcasts or go to our website at thesecondchapterpodcast.com. This week, I'm speaking with Judy Foreman. Judy's life changes have happened through her journey from childhood abuse to empowerment. It is not too late to heal and thrive after abuse, even in your 50s. Take it from Boston Globe journalist and author Judy Foreman, who after an abusive childhood, discovered the unyielding spirit that led her to peace. In Judy's latest book, Let the More Loving One Be Me, she takes us through a journey over 70 years, covering her growth, deep fulfillment, rewarding work, and most wonderfully, love. Through the power of emotional courage and therapy, she changed her inner and outer experience of the world and discovered what matters most cultivating healthy connections with other people. A quick content advisory before the episode begins. Judy and I do speak of the emotional and sexual abuse she suffered towards the beginning of the episode. If you feel you may find that difficult, forwarding to about 11 minutes in will allow you to more comfortably listen to most of our conversation. Who's interested in my life? Why, you know, I'm not a famous celebrity, but I thought, you know, my story could be interesting to people because it has been a journey of sort of self-discovery and progress or escaping from something bad to genuine happiness or content. Hello, Judy. How are you? I'm fine. Nice to be here. Thank you. Nice to have you. And thank you for joining me on the Second Chapter Podcast. Can you tell everybody where you're speaking to me from? I am speaking to you from my office, which is in a little town, Newton, which is outside of Boston, Massachusetts. I spent most of my adult life in Cambridge, Mass., but now I live in Newton. So it's about 20 miles from where I spent most of my life. As I was telling you before we started, I'm spoiled this month and I'm in Edinburgh today with a couple of friends. So I get to record from one of their beautiful, huge, high-ceilinged Edinburgh (laughs) rooms. Oh, that's great. Edinburgh is one of my favorite cities. It's a great city. Yeah. And when it's sunny, it's really amazing. Of course, today it's a bit gray, but you know, it's Scotland. So what do you want? (laughs) So I know that you've had many, many chapters as so many people that I speak, so many women I speak to the podcast do. Your starting chapter was not the happiest of chapters by any means. I asked you ahead of time, maybe what some of the chapters would have been. And the first chapter you called Danger. Not to start things on a low note, but can you tell me a little bit about this dangerous childhood? Yeah. My first chapter is called Danger. I grew up in what I realized later was a really dangerous household. I mean, there were no guns. There was no actual physical violence. But my father, who I have to say was a well-educated man, he was vice president of one of America's biggest companies. So he was a huge honcho executive, corporate type to the max. He drank a lot. He was really an alcoholic, verbally violent, emotionally violent, and for me, sexually abusive. When I was a teenager, he used to come into my room, stand in the doorway every night with just a t-shirt on. He would come down the hall and I would, I could hear his footsteps. And I knew when he turned the corner in the hall, I would turn off my light really fast in hopes of you know, tricking him into thinking I was asleep, but he would open the door anyway. And 
at first I wouldn't answer. And then I would say, I'm trying to go to sleep. And eventually he would go away. But every night I was afraid he would come all the way into my room and I was afraid of being raped. And this went on night after night until I went to college. So it was like a a mock execution, you know, where terrorists pretend they're going to shoot you. They don't actually shoot you, but the trauma, the, the, the threat is so intense that it leaves its own psychological scars. And adding to that, my mother, who was very pretty, very charming, great hostess, but not warm, not deep. She couldn't connect to feeling. She was not, she was not a, a shall we say, evolved person. She was superficial, very, very superficial. Mm-hmm. So there was no one who understood me or listened to me or, or acknowledged the truth of what was going on. So I just want to think, at least in retrospect, that it's no accident that I ended up having a career in journalism where, believe it or not, the goal is to find the truth and tell the truth. And in addition to what I do, I love to write, so that's great for that, but also ferreting out the truth, finding the truth. That really has been my mission personally for my own life and for my life as a professional journalist. So it, in retrospect, it all makes sense. Yeah, having to keep those kind of secrets, I think, especially, I, I know I read somewhere that you said that probably almost harder than what your father was doing was that the fact that your mother just wasn't there. She wasn't there to stop it, to to protect you and and right. the kind of emotional support and love that you needed. Yeah, in retrospect, the bigger damage for me was her emotional unavailability because that left me very scared of feelings and a really deep sense of nobody home, nobody there for me. It was very isolating. And for my brother also, who had a you know, emerge with a lot of pain. So, you know, it looked fine on the surface. We had a decent house and clothes and food and, you know, trips. But as is so often the case, that's a facade. And underneath, there's a lot of stuff going on for not just me, for a lot of people. A lot of people. I often think about a friend of mine who is a social worker and a psychiatrist or psychologist. And she worked inner city in New York City with LGBTQ plus youth who had been made homeless when they came out to their parents. And then she moved into the suburbs. And one of the things she said to me was, you know, basically she thought her life was going to change very dramatically in the sense that these kids wouldn't have problems. (laughs) And I said, I really think you'll be surprised that behind, you don't know what's happening behind closed doors. You really don't. And she came to me, you know, six months or a year later, and she was like, I, what I'm dealing with behind these closed doors is so much more complicated in some instances than what was happening with these inner city kids that I really thought would be the more difficult to help. Right. I mean, alcoholism is certainly very widespread. There's millions of people, adults who grew up with at least one alcoholic parent. And that in itself is very damaging. Because sort of the essence of that kind of family is denial. No one, no one says what's really going on. And the same with abuse. And mainly it's women who suffer from the abuse. And, and children. Children are really frequent. I mean, and adolescents, too, are very frequently uh, sexually abused. And it's usually by a parent, by the father. So, and, you know, looking at the house and the plantings and the rose bushes, you wouldn't think that was the case. But that is very frequently the case. And it's hard to talk about. And I think it's harder in a way than 
the Me Too movement where people are talking about workplace harassment and abuse, because the family is supposed to be sacrosanct, but it's not. It's really not for many, many people. For some people, I assume that things are rosy, but for many people, they may look rosy, but they're, they're not underneath. Everyone that comes on the podcast is a woman 35 or older. So I don't want to just brush state that everybody's had trauma, but there are so many different ways that people throughout their lives suffer from trauma or are hiding something or have dealt with something. And it's interesting because I do feel like part of this is being able to talk about it because yeah. I think for so long, so many women especially aren't able to say this happened to me or I'm up seeing shows at the Edinburgh Fringe and I just saw one about a woman who was raped and her statement was, I believe you. Yes, that is huge to be believed. And I never told my mother because I didn't think I would be believed. Plus also, at that age, I didn't know it was abnormal. This was normal. It was normal for me. Yeah, because it's not like you go to school and tell your friends about it and hear that it's not normal. (laughs) <laughs> what was the end? I mean, I didn't know it was weird. It was what happened in my house, having dinner or watching television. You know, it was the, the way things were. I, I didn't like it. I hated it. I was terrified, but I didn't know that it, there was an it to talk about. This is what it was. Um, I mean, that's very hard for people. You know, it's, what you grow up with is is the world you know, and you don't even know there's something wrong with it. Because you can't verbalize it. You don't, it, it's just, it's not a concept. This this is wrong. I mean, sort of subconsciously know, but you sort of have to get away from it a little bit to think, holy cow, this was not right. Not supposed yeah. to happen. So as far as how you dealt with it, you went on to be a very successful journalist, all kinds of awards, great student. Do you think that it was something that you kind of were hiding yourself in? I don't want to say hiding yourself, but was it an escape for you? Not planned, but yes, I re- school and, and the wider world in general was so comprehensible to me. I mean, it made sense. It was safe. There seemed to be rules. People more or less followed the rules. It was kind of a rational existence. And I, I felt safer in school than at home. I couldn't even verbalize it to myself, but that, that was the case. And then, yeah, I, w- I was an American field service exchange student to Denmark the summer between junior year in high school and senior year. And it was my first chance living in a, in a normal family. And it was weird. Nobody got drunk. Nobody was swearing. <laughs> nobody was coming into my room at night. I thought, wow, this is really nice. Um, yeah. And then I had the tremendous good fortune to go to Wellesley College, which at the time, and I think pretty much still is an all-women's college, I went for the wrong reasons. I went to marry a Harvard man. <laughs> Twice, two of them, (laughs) but it turned out to be one of the best decisions I ever made. It was the first place that valued women. I grew up in a very, I mean, not not right wing conservative, but sort of normal Republican women don't matter environment. And to be valued and to think I was valued for my brain and my mind, not just how good I looked or something. That was huge. That was just unbelievable being valued as a woman. That was that was life changing for me. Um, I'm so glad I went there. So disappointed that my almost classmate Hillary Clinton didn't get to be president. <laughs> I'm but, with you on that one. I'm yes, 100 percent with you on that one. <laughs> yes, the world will be much better. That that was great. And then I, I 
I also think I've been lucky and sort of intentionally lucky, if there's such a thing, in marriage. I married my college sweetheart and we went in the Peace Corps in Brazil, which was great. We were we were 18 when we met and essentially psychologically 18 when we split up at age 30. We were very young. We had no clue what we were doing, but we had a great time in the Peace Corps and we had a great and still great son, but it was not it was not a mature relationship. Mm. But my second husband, who died 17 years ago of prostate cancer, was a good match. And my current husband is also a very, very good match. I mean, both men have really been soulmates, especially my, my current husband. And I really give a lot of credit to that for psychotherapy, which I've done a lot of, and getting to know myself better and real, realizing or sort of figuring out slowly how to pick a good partner you know who someone who was really really there for me which was yeah, obviously you definitely didn't have that as a role model growing exactly. up exactly no role models no role models for anything in my life really i mean i wasn't supposed to have a career i mean journalism was a lucky hit for me and i i credit psychotherapy hugely for the way that i've been able to grow and i honestly think that each of the men i've been married to and one I never did marry, but was engaged to, each one has been right for where I was maturationally along the way. Sort of, as I became more capable of intimacy myself, I picked better and better men, which I think is a really encouraging message for people because there's a lot of divorce and a lot of angst in trying to find a partner. And I really feel that my own growing pains or whatever helped me pick better and better men. Um, it is interesting because I, well, I didn't marry quite young. Well, pretty young. I started seeing my ex-husband when I was, I knew him when I was 18 and started seeing him when I was 19. Yeah. And for me, I just, I didn't have role models of parents that were together forever. But with him, it seemed like that was the case. And we had what was for me a very traumatic divorce. And I think at the time, I didn't want to be the person that was like, oh, there's the one. And he, but, but he felt like he was the one. I mean, that was it for me. So it is interesting because what I always thought about our relationship is what was good about it is we did kind of mature together. And sometimes we were in different places and sometimes we were in the same place. And that was okay until it wasn't. Right. So I realize now, you know, I mean, I, I'm trying to think five and a half, six years on from splitting up with him, how different my partner is now and how, as you say, there there are different people maybe for different times in your life. And I think there is something to be said for that, especially for somebody that, like you said, maybe needs a little encouragement. Oh, you know, I've just split up with somebody. This is it. Because I do think people feel like that oh, sometimes. Oh, it's so discouraging. It's just so discouraging for people. For me, I had 10 years of being single. I mean, Seven of them were sort of involved, but <laughs> I like your style. <laughs> I don't think it's like finding a needle in a haystack. There's only one person. Although my husband now, I I feel like we're perfect for each other. And he feels that way too, which is really nice. In fact, it's essential. So It's yeah. wonderful to hear that because I don't think people can always say that. And I do think sometimes no. people kind of, especially women, tend to settle sometimes because especially as we get a little bit, you know, a little bit later in life and you just think, well, that's probably it. There's no one left for me. You don't think that. I don't think that. But it, I think that does happen and people settle and they shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true 
that gets truer and truer the older you are. When, when my second husband died, I went, I went on a number of different dating apps. And one of them, I, at that point, I was 63. And one of them said, well, at your age, there's nobody. You know, they're all dead or they're all married. And I, I was depressed for a week. I thought, that's terrible. And then I found the best possible person for me. It's, it's tough. But in terms of my own trajectory with my story, it, it, I'm glad we're talking about this because my story is not just the bad beginning. It's kind of the emerging from that and really growing despite that and because of that in a way, you know. Yeah, you certainly don't want to give anyone credit for that beginning. But at the same time, you no, definitely no. have to give yourself credit. And yes. as you said, psychotherapy and, you know, a strong community at your university, all of those things deserve a lot of credit for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And have, you know, Freud said the important things in life are love and work. And I've had those, which is great. Work, I, I really want to emphasize not just the love part, but having a career that is a good fit, or in my case, a great fit, is wonderful. I mean, and a lot of people just put up with, they're not following their bliss. They're following their need for money, which is understandable, or something else, just feeding the kids. And that's a shame because worthwhile, intrinsically valuable work is, is just, it's very soul enriching. And journalism has definitely been that for me. So you mentioned, and you said that this chapter of your life was kind of finding truth, but yeah. you mentioned that journalism was such a good fit because maybe it was finally time to tell the truth. And how, was that something that you knew you wanted to do, you know, when you went to university or was it something that you kind of found along the way? Oh, well, no, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I went to college. Looking back, once I got a job in journalism, I thought, oh, yeah, I wrote for my town. I wrote for my high school newspaper. I wrote for my college newspaper. But I didn't really put all that together. In fact, I, I sort of got into journalism backwards because when I, I was an American Field Service exchange student, as I mentioned before, and we all, like 700 of us, went across the ocean in a big ship called the Seven Seas, which there's 700, you know, 17-year-olds. And there was a notice on the bulletin board saying, editor wanted for ship newspaper. And I, I was a girl, obviously. And I thought, well, girls can't do that. But there was a guy standing next to me. I didn't know. Him, and I said, hey, you want to do that? And, he, and I said, you know, I can't do it because I'm a girl, but we could do it together. And he said, sure. I still couldn't remember his name the whole trip, much less now. But we ran this <laughs> newspaper. And we mainly wrote stupid stuff about what was to eat and, you know, a storm coming, stuff like that. But I wrote this one editorial because I had heard on shipboard that some of the AFS students had had sex with their counterparts in the European countries. And I was horrified. I thought that we are here for world peace, not sex. So I wrote this scathing column saying the lousy few have messed up our world idealistic mission. And then I you know, went back to my little cabin. And the next day I went to the lunchroom and there are these kids parading around. They'd taken a big bed sheet and written the lousy few on it, and they <laughs> marching around making fun of me. They didn't, I, nobody know what anybody looked like, so I hid in my cabin. But I thought, this is great. I, 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 I can move people with my words. So it was mm -hmm. kind of an inauspicious start to journalism. <laughs> That's so funny because, I mean, you know, as you're talking about dating and husbands, but at that point, obviously, you still were not ready for those mm -hmm. things. <laughs> oh, definitely not ready. 
So your journalism career, as I mentioned, was very illustrious. You won more than 50 awards. You were a staff writer at the Boston Globe for 23 years. Just a few highlights about that, because that is, like I said, it's a long and illustrious career, and and you must have many stories. Thousands. (laughs) (laughs) I'll look in the archive. Probably the one that sticks with me the most, which I had a number of things nominated for Pulitzers, and this was sort of the biggest one. Didn't get it, but it came close-ish. Anyway, I, it was a story about hospice. And I followed a young woman who was 39 years old. Her name was Nora, because I wanted to do a story about hospice care. And this was in the late 90s when there was a whole big move of, of, of foot about physician-assisted suicide. And hospice, in my mind then and now, is a much better alternative for people at the end of life if there's no hope for quality of life. Anyway, I followed this young woman who was 39 with terminal breast cancer. And mm. it, it was supposed to be a two or three month story. She was supposed to be dying. She did so well in hospice. It took two years for her to die. She made many friends. She was thrilled that I was writing about her because she had no children, but she saw my story as kind of her legacy for the world. Her, you know, it kind of put her on the map and uh, was something people could remember her by. And she was very courageous, very honest. And we became very close. She became very close to the Globe photographer. And we ended up with this group of people who were her support group. And, you know, that gave me the opportunity to write about hospice in general, which I still think is practically the best thing going in medicine. It's, it's, it's very patient-centered. It's very non-interventional, only pain control, nausea control only trying to control symptoms, not trying to put people through endless procedures. So much compassion and love and support with the hospice volunteers and the hospice nurses who were the cheeriest people I've ever met. I mean, they were comfortable with the idea of death, not afraid, very caring. It was just, it was probably the most meaningful journalistic experience I have ever had. I have a poster, a big picture of, of my my patient right here in my study to remind me of how how courageous some people are and how how wonderful hospice is. So that I guess that would be my my favorite story. Of course, you know, end of life care has to be. You would think it would be, as you said, so patient centric and so loving and caring. But the fact that that it has to be mentioned as opposed to. Right. People who are being cared for when they're still, you know, viably living and why things aren't happening like that. I don't know. I mean, even just to go to a doctor's visit, sometimes it's, it can be very traumatic as far as the people at the desk were rude or the doctor didn't have time for me. And I'm not by any means faulting the doctors, but at the same time, it is such a shame that that's not something that's just, of course, a doctor's compassionate. Right. Of course, care is caring. Exactly. And it's gotten worse since COVID. I mean, my my husband now has a serious medical issue and we spent a lot of time going to doctors and now it's all through patient portals. You know, you have to log in and do your appointment. It's just yet another depersonalizing step. I know it's supposed to be helpful for people, you know, to schedule their appointments and stuff, but I find it <laughs> much easier in the old days to call up and say something and have a phone conversation rather than... Yeah all these, you know, high-tech things. And most of the time, somebody has to help you anyway. I mean, I'm fairly tech-savvy, but at the same time, 
some of those things, I'm just like, you know what? I'm going to call because I want to talk to a person and I don't right. know how this stupid thing works. <laughs> I know. I know. Exactly. Especially for older people, you know, who are in general less tech savvy. It's, it's a, I see it as sort of an obstacle, not a boom. You know, it's, I mean, you have to learn it, but it, it's hard for older people. And obviously, older people are the people that, for the most part, need to be going to the doctor more, as you mentioned, like your husband now. Exactly. So speaking of all of this, we didn't really, other than the hospice article, we didn't really talk about that so much of your journalism was about medicine. And it's funny because I logged onto your website and there's FAQs. So I'm going to look about you and then it's all these health questions. But you also wrote a book, Exercises, we wrote several books, but Exercises Medicine is one that was specifically about aging. So I just kind of wanted to have the conversation. I mean, to say that the conversation about aging is a bit (laughs) broad. But uh, a little bit about exercise as medicine and, and why you chose to write that book and how it's affecting you now. Well, that book keeps being an inspiration to me myself because I kind of, you know, to keep up my street creds, so I have to keep doing what I practice, what you preach. Exactly. No, I love that book because I, I really delved into the molecular biology of medicine, the really nitty gritty science of what moving your body does. It does so many different things. And it, it does help combat, that's kind of a strong word, but the processes of aging that normally occur, it slows, it literally slows them down. Particularly important to my mind are the, the benefits of aging on the brain. When we exercise, our brains produce a chemical called BDNF, which stands for brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which just means... It's a chemical made in the brain that acts on the brain. It acts on the, specifically on the hippocampus, which is the memory center. And there's a lot of evidence showing that it helps nerve cells grow and make more connections. And that's obviously good for memory. It's also fantastically good for mood. It's exercise, aerobic exercise can be as effective for many people as medications for depression and other things. And it's a strong helper in preventing cognitive decline. There's one study I I often think of from Canada that said if everyone who is now not exercising started exercising, we could eliminate one in every seven cases of Alzheimer's. It has this this chemical, which they call, people dub it miracle growth of the brain. It really does help prevent cognitive decline. I mean, obviously not all the time. There's still rampant Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease and other problems that that affect the brain. But exercise is incredibly potent for that. Obviously, people know it's good for their heart, for their breathing, good for their muscles. People don't think of it so much as being really good for their brain, but it really is. So that's my take-home message from that. (laughs) And that book was really fun fun to write. Well, they all have been. I have a, a novel that came out last year about the new gene editing technique called CRISPR, it's a way of using genetic engineering to change genes or insert good genes and take out bad ones. It's, it's kind of a simplistic explanation. So I wrote a, a medical thriller about that process where there's an evil geneticist doing bad things with CRISPR, even though CRISPR is a very, very good thing for, for medicine. For, it has the potential to treat and cure a number of diseases that are called, caused by bad genes. 
not to ruin the, the story of your novel, but I'm assuming that the evil geneticist was controlling or, you know, make, uh, sounds very Nazi-esque, trying to control the gene pool in that sense. He was actually, in my book, he was an Ashkenazi Jew who was trying to get revenge against the Nazis. Interesting. <laughs> And this brilliant young female journalist who had a paper much like the Boston Globe, where I worked. <laughs> brilliant young female journalist. <laughs> brilliant young female journalist. Catches him through various ways. And the rest, I don't want to do a spoiler alert. You have to read it. It's called Chris yeah. <laughs> Okay. I will definitely do that because it sounds amazing. I actually, one of my favorite television shows that I think was about two seasons, maybe it got to three here, and then it just stopped. And there was so much more that could have happened. But it was a television show called Utopia. And I don't know, I didn't see that. It, I, I don't know if it was available in the States. It was such an amazing show because it was a lot about, it, they used it more about population control. And, you know, there is an argument to the world being overpopulated, and that's part of the climate change issue and stuff. But this was sort of like, if I recall, it's been several years, but it was almost like they were genetically engineering out weaker, as you might say, oh, yeah. and again, to kind of to combat that. And that was very, it was fascinating because it was, I mean, there were parts of it that, that made you want to have a discussion about it, but it was obviously huh. at the end of the day, they were the bad guys. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As were the Nazis. I mean, they, they didn't well, have yeah. <laughs> available, but they had... They were trying to do it just by killing off the, the so-called weaker people. Yeah, no, there was a whole eugenics movement, it was called, where people were trying to maximize the so-called good genes and minimize the bad ones. Yeah, I mean, there's always that threat when you're, when you're tinkering around with, with DNA. But it also, I mean, there's some horrible diseases that are, are really on track to be cured, like sickle cell anemia, which is very prevalent among African-Americans been some cases where they have been able to knock out the, the bad gene for hemoglobin that causes this, the red blood cells to crump up in a funny shape. And then, mm -hmm. then when blood goes past joints and stuff, it's horrifically painful. And people live with this their whole lives. It's, it's one of the big causes of pain. And there's very promising results with that. And with other diseases that are caused by a single gene, I mean, there's a lot of hope with this. And, and with everything else, you know, potential danger too. Who makes the decision? Who decides which scientists are on the right track and which are on the wrong track? And if you've recently seen the movie Oppenheimer, as I have, you know, this was tremendously exciting science to make the atom bomb and tremendously dangerous as well. So it's, it's a double-edged sword. I feel like in my life, I'm seeing it a lot with AI because I'm an yeah. actor. And I've actually had somebody approached me about recording my voice because they wanted to have that voice where they could probably just steal it off the podcast at this point because I talk so much. But, you know, they wanted to take my voice and be able to use it for all of eternity with no real promise of pay so that they could, you know, I mean, apparently it's for good, blah, 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 but you don't know what they're going to use it for. And it cuts off my oh. ability to do voiceover work. It cuts off any other actor that might have the same kind of casting for a voice as me. And, you know, when, when I when I brought it up, they said something like, well, you know, in the paperwork, it'll say we can never use it for like defamatory purposes. And I was like, it's not just that. I mean, it's my voice. You're stealing a part of my identity. Wow. And it's your voice. You own your voice. I hope you didn't give it away. I absolutely did not. When I realized what they were doing, I said, absolutely not. 
But I am seeing cases with the Hollywood strike where people are mentioning their their faces being used in AI, sometimes without their permission. And and it's one of those things, again, I mean, I know that I do some of the editing of the podcast on this wonderful AI program, Descript. I think it's great editing tool, but I also am concerned with some of the things when they're like, we want to record your voice because we have it almost perfect that we can change things. It's really frightening. I'm on such a tangent, but I do think that technology is so good, but it's so scary as well. Yes, I totally agree. I do want to talk about, obviously, your most recent book because, well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, it's called Let the More Loving One Be Me. And it does sound like you sort of taken the high road. I know you mentioned therapy, you mentioned, you know, getting to know yourself and all the other things that have made your life better and and helped you to get past a lot of childhood trauma. But tell me about the book and tell me about forgiveness and the title and, and how that all came about. Sure. The title is Let the More Loving One Be Me. And I should probably mention the publisher, which is She Writes Press, a feminist press. The uh, little plug for them. The title came, my husband and I were, were hiking in the Swiss Alps this is a, a number of years ago, actually almost 10 years ago. And a line from a poem, this is going to make me sound more erudite than I am, but somehow this line from a poem popped into my head. And the poem was by W.H. Odd. And the actual quote was, if equal affection cannot be, let the more loving one be me. So I stopped at the trail and I said this to my husband and he said, wow, that's amazing. What's that from? And I said, I think it's from Auden. And I said, yeah, let the more loving one be me. And both of our eyes filled with tears and he gave me this big hug and he said, no, let the more loving one be me. Oh, he does sound great. That's <laughs> great. And so that became the title. The book itself was, I didn't set out to write a book. I, I'm in this wonderful organization called the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. It's, it's part of Harvard University, but for people, not just Harvard people, but other people who sign up and get admitted. I started taking a memoir class just for fun. was taught by this terrific, very flamboyant, dramatic woman. And the class was amazing. And so I wrote a memoir a week about anything, silly things, important things, whatever. And I ended up with this huge pile of memoirs. And I sort of kept writing after the class was over. And eventually I thought, you know, this is kind of interesting. I think I have a book. And, you know, of course you wonder, well, who who's interested in my life? Why, why, you know, I'm not a famous celebrity. But I thought, you know, my story could be interesting to people because it has been a journey of sort of self-discovery and and what, I don't know what word to use except progress or escaping from something bad to genuine happiness or contentment. And it's it's not an easy journey, but I've ended up in a in a better situation than a lot of my friends in terms of love and marriage and basically having had a really good life. And I thought, well, that's good for people to hear, you know, because it's hard to crawl your way out of out of the past if it's still affecting you. So I thought it was worth a try. Obviously, I'm a big advocate of people telling stories, women over 35 telling their stories, telling about their life, career changes. I believe that we all have the story to tell. And, you know, if if there is something, like you said, in your story that can help someone, that can that can inspire someone to something different, to know that their life can be okay. I do think one of the things with the podcast for me is 
Yes, I've had some people that have a higher level of being known, higher levels of fame or being known. And But I really do love talking to a variety of people that some have had the most normal, quote unquote, lives. Yeah. Well, that, in a sense, you're a journalist. I mean, that's how I would describe journalism is one of the one of the big benefits is you you talk to people from all walks of life, and it's fascinating. I mean, it pays to be an extrovert. I'm an extrovert, so that that's a very useful trait for being a journalist. I had one editor at the Globe say, "Yeah, the reporters are extroverts, the editors are introverts," and there was something to them. <laughs> we were the ones out there in the street or on the phone talking to total strangers, and I, I do. My husband kind of is always astonished. I strike up conversations with tons of people, you know, like the gas station attendant or something. It's just, it's part of my personality, but it's a very useful trait for, for finding things out. I mean, it's not that I'm necessarily intending to find things out, but you come back to the newsroom with a story, whether you plan to or not. I did want to ask you, you said that the book wasn't meant to happen and it kind of did. And and I think because you've come out of a better place, do you think that something like forgiveness is necessary? What do you think you need to get past childhood trauma? I don't like the word forgiveness or the concept of forgiveness. It's it's too loaded for me. I mean, mm. you can't forgive. I can't forgive something that was a violation of me. And why should I? I mean, I, I think there's kind of a cultish idea around forgiveness that that will make everything okay. And I, there's sort of religious overtones that I don't want. I think you can't do violence to your own emotions in the name of forgiveness. I mean, I think you can. Wow, this is your hard question. Arrest have been easy. What do I think? I think you can heal from trauma and things that someone might think you should forgive, but forgiveness itself, it, it, I, I, I think there's the, the sort of a right way of doing it and a wrong, a superficial or wrong or inauthentic way of doing it. And I think it's really hard to tease it apart. Thinking of that guy, Kevin Ruth or, Ruth or something, the guy who shot up all those people in church in South Carolina and the the congregation, they they immediately were forgiving him. How can, you know, that just, how is that possible? That just, uh, psychologically, that doesn't seem possible to me. It doesn't seem authentic to me. I like what you said, that, that you don't owe someone forgiveness or, you know, that you don't need to do that emotional damage to yourself. That right. you can you can move past something. You can get rid of these kind of terrible feelings that you have around something for yourself. But yeah. yeah, why? Why? Do, why? Yeah, I think that's an important thing to, to kind of, a, a good way to kind of think of things because I I agree we kind of have this superficial like, and maybe people can really deeply forgive. I don't think that's in my nature. I think that there are things that you know what, I'll get over it. But why should I forgive you? Right. But I mean, I don't want to be offensive to people who think they can really do that deep in their hearts. Maybe they maybe they can. But it sort of gets into religious territory or, or belief system that is complicated for me. I mean, I, I don't think in those terms. And part of moving past it, I think you you did speak to your mother basically when she was on her deathbed. That's about, right. You know, kind of what you went through with your father. Do you think that did that help or hinder 
coming to the phase where you are now. And again, not forgiveness, but you know, getting past some of the feelings that you were forced to feel. I don't think it played much of a role. You know, I did, as she was dying, I did say, you know, he came into my room every night with everything just hanging out. And she said, oh, you should have told me. But, you know, I, I didn't say, but if I had, you wouldn't have done anything, which would have been the case, I'm convinced. She was much more concerned with preserving the marriage than anyone's mental health, especially mine or my brother's. It, it wouldn't have done any good to tell her, but it wasn't, it wasn't even, you know, I didn't know that there was something to tell. It was so normal. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for I, her to kind of put that back on you, even all the years later, when you are, you know, when she's much older, when you're much older, but to say, why didn't you tell me? Yeah. Why didn't you tell me? But I, I couldn't trust her. I mean, she, she wouldn't have done anything because to, to take, to believe me, as you were talking about, I believe you. For her to believe me would have been to her question her marriage. And she had only two years of college. She couldn't have supported herself. I mean, if she, if she had been honest about her own feelings and honest about feelings in general in the family, she would have left him. But people didn't do that in those days. Yeah. And a lot of people still don't. She didn't have the means to support herself. And psychologically, that was just not in her realm of possibility which was true for a lot of women in that generation, I think more than now. But then even you said that on the ship, when you saw the editor position (laughs) at that point in time, it was like, I can't do this because I'm a girl. Exactly. We actually have made progress slowly, but sure. Sometimes it seems like, you know, two steps forward, two steps back, or one step forward, two steps back. But when you do think about things that happened in your lifetime, in my lifetime, in my mother's lifetime, we have it's, made progress, we thankfully. Have, definitely have. And maybe we'll have a female president sometime soon. I love that you're gunning for this one. I am too. I don't like the word gunning. Let's use a different word. I love that you're you're pulling for that one because I am too. It is time. I don't like the word it, gunning either, I have to say. <laughs> no, not when you're talking about America. I've never asked this question before, but I am curious about when you look to your past yeah. And you look to your future, how you'd like to be, how you'd like people to speak about you, how you'd like to be remembered. I don't want to say but to be remembered sounds like you're walking off into the yet. sunset. <laughs> you're not dead yet. But no, one of the exercises I've done is writing a letter to my future self. And I think that, you know, you write a letter sometimes to your past self, but I love the idea of talking to myself in the future because it, it, it helps me think about who I want to be at that point. So looking into the future, where would you like to be and how would you like people to be talking about you? That's a better way to ask it. Let's see. A really, really, really good journalist and a very loving person. That's it. I think that those are two wonderful things and two things that obviously have been the basis of your life and your changes through life. The writing element that's kind of evolved and finding love and happiness in a time, you know, in a place that you didn't know it for so much of your life. Yeah, yeah. That's right. I like that. I Good. Mean, <laughs> personal, professional, yeah. mixing it all together. And I always ask people for a quote, which I warned you about. Did you bring one for me? All right. This is a quote from the Indian poet Rumi, and I forget what century he was in, but it was a long time ago. And it's called The Guest House. I'll read you the whole thing and you can edit as you want. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, 
some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. It's fairly obvious how you would apply that or why you've chosen that one, but how do you, why does that one appeal to you? Because I've had so much trouble in my life, given the way I grew up, accepting my, allowing myself to feel feelings, to allow the feelings to, to be felt, to be honored, to be taken seriously because they weren't when I was growing up. And it's so painful and hard to do that, but it's the only way to go. Running away from them doesn't work. The, the show that I just saw that had the I Believe You also, when people were leaving, she was giving out little badges, pins that said, I'm being very brave. And yeah. I think for you to tell your story and to be willing to sit with those feelings is definitely being very brave. So thank you for coming on and sharing part of your story. There's so much more. You, you've had such an interesting life so far. I really appreciate getting to know you a bit today. Thank you. You're a fabulous host, a very charming person. I've had a great time. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome back anytime. Take care. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for the Second Chapter newsletter. The Second Chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35 plus. You can find us at thesecondchapterpodcast.com and slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.